0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Khavruta, Yerdeyna Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, daf Pei, 80. Before we begin, we just want to thank all the people who joined us on our Zoom call yesterday. We had such a wonderful time learning with you, Likrat Shavuot, um, in preparation for, Shavu- for Shavuot. If you missed it, however, you can find that link. Um, if you're in the WhatsApp group, you can find it there, or alternatively, you can find it on the Facebook Um, on our Facebook page Uh, you can click and watch as if you were there and we look forward to doing this again with you whenever that time next comes around Um, okay now to jump into our DAF I want to pick up on the 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 Gemara continues the discussion that I found intriguing the other day specifically about the blue eyeshadow right and what's particularly pleasing is that it asks the question that I had and that's always a nice feeling, right? Baruch Shekivanti, how nice that I understood the Gemara's question that was to come. So it says, right? That's the measure of carrying this this blue. How much was it? We said the amount for one eye. And we said, one second, one eye. Like whoever just puts makeup on just one eye. And the Gemara here says, And here the Gemara says, like, Really, just one eye? So Rav Huna says, well, the most modest women would only have blue on one eye with the assumption here, it doesn't spell it out in the words of the Gemara, but the assumption is that they are veiled and only one eye was showing. And so then the they only needed the blue on the one eye and they didn't bother to put the blue on the eye that was hidden. But the Gemara does not accept this. Meaning now there's a whole lot we could talk about that that conception of modesty, and we'll get there in a bit. But first, from a very practical standpoint, the government does not accept this position that, that the women would have only put the blue on one eye, the showing eye. I feel like it's the ancient version of, you know, Zoom when nobody knows what you're wearing down beneath, but you're dressed very professionally up on top. Right. right? Like so it's work,
1: work on the top, party on the bottom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So your one eye is like, naked but the other eye is all dressed up with your blue eye shadow so Rabbi Shimon ben Lazar takes the whole discussion away from what I've been calling makeup it says if you're using k'hol right if you're using this substance for a medicinal purpose that's when you might actually need it just for one eye Right, and that makes sense. Now it makes sense because you're not talking about getting dressed up. You're talking about treating if one eye has need of treatment, right? But if you were using the same substance for decorative purposes, right, to adorn yourself, that would obviously be the two eyes. And so, so I feel like, oh, now I feel better. The Gemara understood exactly what the problem was with the initial discussion, even though it's not actually in the same place at all, right? The discussion continues at some remove, you know, on the daf itself. Um, okay, and then the gemara continues. So the gemara says, all of this was talking about village women. What does it mean? Or, or town women, I'm not, I, you know, the translation on safari says village women, but I would think that this is really townswomen. And then the implication is that in a place where people had less exposure to immodest behavior to begin with, then there was no need for the women to cover their faces and be that much more Tzannua. And this to me, I think is remarkable. It happens to be that in another hat, you know, and not my talking Talmud hat, I, Uh, co-founded an organization called Chokhmat Hashim. And one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about is exactly this issue of hyper-modesty that seems to be plaguing the Orthodox world in the modern era. This idea that women cannot be shown, the women, you know, drawings, photographs of women cannot be shown in publications. And this question of, you know, to what extent, uh, oh, anything, you know, that anything might be considered immodest, even though it's really just basic modest living, right? So the idea and, and part of the discussion is always that, that this is a cultural swing back against the hyper immodesty of, let's say, of the secular culture, of the Hollywood culture and so on. And so that we end up with two extremes you know being the two sides of the same coin. So I feel like this comment here of the Gemara that when you're talking about a situation where people could You'll forgive me. Just be normal when nobody's reacting to immodesty around them, so that they have to feel that they need to be all that much more modest. Well, then you could just be normal, and and in that case, you would they would not veil themselves, and they would not veil themselves and leave just one eye showing, which is really a very extreme covering if you consider it in you know in terms of the burkas and you know all the different um, attire that we see coming out of let's say Afghanistan and so on. So I found this Gemara you know on the one hand a little disconcerting and on the other hand you know a very complete <laughs> a very applicable uh rendition of issues of modesty and hypermodesty even that we see them in the in our day
1: yeah you know it's it's interesting to see i think these notions of modesty have always been around clearly they've always been part of sort of i don't know i guess how men have viewed women in a certain way, or these are that element of the burden being on a woman um, sort of has always been there. Um, But, you know, we've also seen other Gemaras where, you know, we talked about, you know, the pinky finger, and it was very clear that that burden was on the man. So I just think we have to put this in an entire context of the Talmud itself.
0: Uh yeah, I think that's I think that's always always a helpful perspective as well. Right. Okay, the next the next section here that we should talk about, and I'm a little bit reluctant to because I don't have any really good understanding of it or explanation of it, is also connected to Tsniot. Tzvi- to um, Jordana, would you like to set it up? This business with the lime? Yes. Yeah,
1: so the Gamar's here in the middle of a discussion about how much lime you can carry out. And it's clear that lime was used as a substance. I never say this word correctly in English. It was a depilatory. Is that the right word? Um, You know, that it was used basically for hair removal. And the Gemara then shares a very odd story. Um, You know, so first it goes through a lot of specifics of like that poor people would use lime. um, Wealthy, you know, wealthier people would use fine flour to remove the hair. And then the kings of daughter would do the shemin Hamor, and they quote a pasuk from Mickey Latestere, um, that it was this type of of um olive oil. And then they get to this interesting story. Like while they're on the topic of topic of lime, they're gonna tell us something about Rev uh B V. Um so you know So I just
0: it seems to me in the depilatory certainly, it also seems to be that this is a a an emoly an emollient. emollient. Yeah, right, right. Sorry, I shouldn't say it is a hair soft, removal, it but soft, it also
1: it makes your skin look good that that, that it, it has a twofold purpose
0: now my fear of this is that i feel like in the modern era we know that lime on the skin would really be very bad for you yes well
1: it's, right. it's so toxic. This whole, it basically was you would burn the hair off i mean that's essentially what you were doing
0: right but like how like there's there's nothing fun about this experience right no. like you can imagine a spa spa treatments right some of them are maybe not not so fun. And at the end, you look beautiful. And is that wonderful? But also, some of them are quite pleasing. And, and this does not sound fun at all, especially when we look at this discussion of Rav Bivi. Right, exactly. So,
1: so go ahead. You're going to read this, right?
0: Okay, yeah, sure. So, Rav Bivi, havile Barta, he has a daughter, Tapla Aver Aver. So, what does he do? He smears her with lime, like over her whole, all her, li- you know, limb by limb. Ma'azuza. zuze right so at the end of it she's become so beautiful that he can marry her off for 400 Zeus, right meaning usually the 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 measure is 200 zoos so so that pays off right meaning all of this uh pampering such as it is is apparently to her benefit or to his benefit anyway vute right so, what happened? There's a certain um, non Jew, right. A non Jew in his in Rav Bive's ne- neighborhood. Ha- um Tafla Brata Zimna So he has a daughter, the non Jew, he wants to do the same thing. He smears her entire body with lime limb by limb. And no, I actually know, think I you smear. have to read it differently. It's what right. I think
1: it's saying is that Aver Aver is he sort of did it limb by limb, like it wasn't all at the same time, whereas the, the, uh, the non the neighbor sort of misunderstood the methodology of how to do this correctly. And he does it. He does it all at one time. And therefore, what happens is she, she dies because that was not. I think that that language difference is actually very important. Sorry, I
0: didn't mean to. I think it is very important and I appreciate the the, the distinction here. And then Amar, Katal Rav Bibi Levrati. He says, Rav Bibi killed my daughter, right? Because I mean, he's following his, he thinks he's following his approach, even though he's, as, as your answer points out, he doesn't quite. So, Rav Nachman says Rav Bivi drinks beer. His daughters therefore require that they would have this lime because apparently the beer would cause hair growth. I do not right. think I didn't any biological... understand
1: if that meant that there was just like beer was the beverage of choice in their house, and therefore sort of everybody in the house drank beer and it caused beer to grow. That's what I think it means.
0: But but right, except for that, it doesn't I don't say think the daughter there's drink any actual connection. Right, first of all, it doesn't say the daughter's drink it. Secondly, as far as I know, there is no actual biological connection between beer drinking and hair growth.
1: Right, it's the same thing. Okay. Like, I don't know if you've heard the other one that like beer drinking is good for breastfeeding, like it will increase your milk
0: supply. But
1: that's true, that's uh, true. Not so clear, but anyhow, okay. I mean, I <laughs> we digress. That's true.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, okay, and then it says, so then it says, we who do not drink beer do not require that our daughters will be smeared with lime meaning don't try this at home folks you don't have to this was a unique thing to the family of Rav Bibi. yeah which doesn't really answer the the story with anju, meaning your Dana your read does a beautiful job of it but the Gemara doesn't come back and say no he didn't really kill him or kill her meaning he let me say differently nobody's really think that that, except for the father nobody really thinks that rabivi killed the daughter but his his protocol right was dangerous and there's no acknowledgement of there's no response to the non-jew in his distress which i find also a little disturbing everything about this story i find disturbing except for your distinction between the two protocols from what Rabivi did and what his yeah, neighbor did. That, to me, is a logical distinction. I, you know,
1: w- when Anne and I were preparing this, this is one of those stories where we sometimes encounter on the Daf. We had one a couple weeks ago also, and now I'm not recalling what it was about. Um, but I know it appears again. Quote. Oh, about the the maid servant, which people will remember. They'll know what I'm talking about, the shifcha. That, look, they're troubling stories. And I don't know that we always have, like, good answers. And I think we sort of struggle on the podcast you know, should we just read them and sort of just say, hey, we don't have a good answer. We really would love to hear if maybe some of our other learners have an interesting way. Or look, are we just going to sometimes see things on the page of the DAF that, yep, it doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities. And let's like, just own that and sit with it for a little bit. I think this is
0: one of those. But I, I, think this didn't, I think this didn't sit with the ancient sensibilities. either. Correct. Right. It seems to be strange thing. that The neighbor decides to do it so that he can get, you know, a better dowry for his daughter whatever. A better bride price, I mean. And and then Rav Nachman comes along and says, like, no, no, no. This is not. Well,
1: I agree with you. Is I think trouble. that's exactly what Rav Nachman is doing. He's basically coming to say, nobody read this or hear about this and think this is behavior you should emulate or this is something good to do with your daughters. He had a specifically re- reason for doing it. Nobody else needs to do it. So I actually agree with you. The Gemara itself comes to tell us this is not, this isn't something, don't try this in your own home. They're very clear. There's a warning on the page. I
0: agree with that. Which is fascinating, you know, how it comes to be in the Gemara to begin with, as like part of the discussion of Lyme, because it's kind of an aside, except for that it takes our center stage. It's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon when something that is, where the conclusion is don't do this, makes it in makes its way into the Gemara. Yes, I would agree. The Gemara preserves it and then knocks it down. Right. And
1: that's um, that's different than some of the other stories we see where there's just something so weird, disturbing. Correct. But here, at least it's sort of Reb Nachman comes to sort of be like, this is not anything you want to do. We know this is a disturbing story. Um, I'm going to get to the next disturbing story, which is on the page, which (laughs) is right before the Mishnah. Um, that reads as uh, that reads as, and they're talking about the concept of what an Andifa is, right? So the, the Gemara comes to the conclusion that an adifa is a forehead on which uh, on which line was there, and then it comes, and what's the story that they have um, to prove that, right? So viba is ema my afuta, right? And so they say, so if you want, you could say that Andifa is a forehead. B'chiha dahu bar okay, de'akli le'Bavel. So there was a Galilean who came uh, to visit Babel once. De'Amrulay, and they said to him, "Kum drushlano the Maser We want you to come and teach us about the Maser Merkava. So what was the Maser Merkava? Maser Merkava is uh, the first parak of uh, Yeheskel, and it depicts this very esoteric vision that Yeheskel has. Um, of sort of the chariot of God. Um, and it's sort of this upper chamber of God and it, it's in the heavens and it's really considered to be sort of, I would say, uh, the, the mystical text of Tanakh. Um, and basically people were not really allowed to, you, only certain people could learn it. And even how it was taught, uh, it was not supposed to be taught uh, except for like a, a Rebbe to the student. And in fact, when we get to Chagiga and Daf Yud Gimel, uh, there will be a series of stories there of things that happened to people because they learnt the Master Markava in the incorrect way. So this is sort of the quintessential uh, mystical text that appears in Tanakh itself, right? Um, and so what does he say? So they say, could you, you know, teach it to, to, to us? Amar L'Chu, so again, it's very important here that it's plural, he says to them, right? And so, what happened? So he says, "What?" He says, "I will teach it to you." Uh, I just lost my place, sir. "Kidros, Kidros, Rabbi the nafka arite min koto u'machite Okay. And so, what happens? Um, so he says, "So he says, I'll teach it to you as Rabbi Nachami taught it to his colleague." That's what he said. Sorry. And then a hornet came from the wall and stung him on his forehead, right? I know there's these murder hornets now that everybody's talking about, okay? So, um, and stings him on the forehead. And again, it's very unusual because I think with the proof here that they're using for the word um, uh, andifa is from this story, where it says, um the meat, and he dies. Min right? And so they said, from his own that came to him. Um, you know, so the point here of the story is, is it's almost like they're telling sort of a folk story that uses this particular word of Andifa in order to prove that Andifa means forehead. Um, so that's kind of interesting, like how they prove the usage of the word forehead. And the second piece here is interesting. It's just, you know, sort of using this as an example of all of the things that were inherently wrong. Uh, not wrong. It's not the right word. Uh that you have to be careful with, with teaching Masa Merkava. And it's interesting to me, it's not the students who are held responsible, because it's clearly, it's in plural, right? They came to him, right? The they said to him, and he says, sure, Lekhavre. I will teach it to you the way Rabbi Nehemia did to his friends. So that interaction was okay, because it was just Rabbi Nehemia to one person. But here, the teacher is held responsible. This Galilean is held responsible because he taught it to multiple people. So I think that also teaches us something about the student-teacher relationship, that ultimately it's the teacher who is responsible. That if a student makes a request that's incorrect, and in this case, it's in this case, it's students it was the what was incorrect was not the notion of learning the Master Merkabah, but it was the setting that it was a group of people together. The Galilean should have known. Uh, that that was something that he shouldn't have taught. But we'll hear more about the Master Merkava when we get to uh, and Chagiga.
0: I think that every, I feel like every time we, sto- eh, anything touches on Masa Merkava, I'm like, okay, can we really, are we really going to understand this? You know, how esoteric is it going to be? Some of the nevut about the Masa Merkava are particularly kind of far out, let's say. And um I feel like the very fact that it's here and then like with the cautionary tale, um, I'm not even sure. I I feel like, yes, that's exactly it. Like there, there does seem to be a time and a place to, to pay attention to uh, listen. It's in the Gemara, right? It's there for the learning. Um, And yet it's there with a caution. And the idea that people can kind of, you know, we live in an era where, knowledge information is king right you can learn anything you can find anything you can expose yourself to just to really just to anything and there's very little concern that knowledge could do any damage right and i feel like this is that this is the idea that you can put yourself in a you know in a in a the context of the material itself where it can lead you into you know thought patterns or or questions or whatever exposure to something that at the end of the day is not going to do you any favors. And we can talk about that from a psychological standpoint. Obviously this is really presenting from a mystical standpoint. Um, I think the idea that, that there is what, that there is a need to be cautious around knowledge is interesting in, in our era specifically as a, as a lesson to us.
1: I agree with you. Yeah, I think there's we'll see the master cover come up. And there's a lot to learn from it as an example. Um, I just want to go to one quick thing at the bottom of the daf, which I think is something that may not be so obvious. Uh, we then get to our next Mishnah, which again goes through again, different types of measurements. Um, and it talks about plaster. Um, and you know that you could have plaster that's on a spoon and then the Gemara gets into a question of if it's plaster mixed with sand. Um, or straw in it. And I think that's just an important thing there because um, it says there at the bottom here um, uh, where uh, oh, where is it? Rabbi Amar kilkulu tikunu. okay, that even the Rabbi says that even our Mishnah is in, goes to according to the opinion of the rabbis who disagree with Rabbi Yehuda. I'm not going to go through the Alma locus here, who says that when it's ruined, it's it's uh, it's it's improvement. Um, and what they're talking about here is, is that post-destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, you know, there were a lot of things and we, we've seen this also come up on the pages of the DAP. There were a lot of things that they changed about their practices to show that we were sort of in a constant state of mourning. And one of the things they did was, was that you could not use like straight good plaster. You sort of had to ruin your plaster a little bit and you would do it, you know, by adding like sand to it um, or something like that. Um, which would, wouldn't would really help it. Um, and you would just sort of use like a ruined plaster, basically. So I just wanted to point that out. I don't think it's perfectly obvious um, on the dot. And I think it's interesting just to take note, and we'll see it time and time again, a variety of minhagim, of customs that develop um, in the diaspora and in Eretz Israel itself to symbolize the mourning that was constant for the Jewish people when there was no longer a temple anymore.
0: Right, it's one of those things where, since it's not part of our—I mean, obviously we talk about returning to the, the temple and the loss that we have, but especially I'm sitting in a vibrant Jerusalem, or at least you know, pre-COVID nineteen, it was vibrant Jerusalem, and and it's coming back to itself in any case. And and the we just had Yom Yerushalayim, Hakotel Biadeno, right? All of this, and to say that um, there is a a conscience constant awareness of the absence of the temple, I think is another lesson that we can take home. Right. That it, even when it feels like, well, wait a minute, you know, we, we function well enough without that. the answer is no, no, we're missing something and we need to feel that gap. Exactly. And
1: I think that when we read these things in the Gemara, it's a nice, it's, it's a good reminder for us. So with that, we'll, we'll conclude. That's our dot for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the talking Talmud. Uh, sorry on the Hadron website. Uh, Leave us a comment on our Talking Talent page, especially if you have any insight into some of the unusual stories that we had today. Um, And until tomorrow's death.